Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. This episode is kind of like the sister episode to the last one, right? So in the last episode, we talked about the crucifixion. And then in this one, we talk about the resurrection. So you might remember that one of the first things we said in the last episode is that we kind of can't talk about one without the other. Yeah, like in the Christian tradition, suffering and redemption, the cross and the resurrection are like inextricably linked. So these two episodes are going to kind of speak very closely to one another. So, as Christians, we believe that Christ didn't just die for us, he also then rose from the dead. Yeah, and this is like one of the most fundamental truths of Christianity that's shared by every denomination. Like, you would be pretty hard-pressed to find a Christian who didn't believe that Christ died and rose from the dead. So, in one sense, it's kind of like, it seems like one of the most sanitized and uncontroversial aspects of our faith. Yeah, like it's the kind of thing that we'll sort of happily rattle off when we say the creed at church, you know, Jesus was crucified, he died and was buried, and then on the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven. Easy. But... When we pay attention to what that actually means, like what we're actually saying when we say those words, we realize that this is anything but a like sanitized, uncontroversial idea. So let's think about it. As Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ, okay, this real, actual human being from history that we can historically prove to have existed was executed by the Romans 2,000 years ago, okay? He genuinely died, was buried in a tomb, and then, after he had been solidly dead for three days, suddenly came back to life. And this time, he came back to life in, like, a special body that defies the laws of physics and can, like, walk through walls and appear and disappear at will. Like, we can read fairy tales and stories like, you know, Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings, and they seem so sort of otherworldly and fantastic. But when we think about it, what we believe in one sense is just as fantastic and incredible. Like it's kind of mind blowing, right? So in this episode, we're going to unpack the following words. Jesus rose from the dead. Okay. We're going to look closely at what that actually means, what we're actually saying when we say that. We're going to think about how we can actually know that this is true, yeah, especially 2,000 years later. And then lastly, we'll consider what this idea means for us today as Christians. So, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Well, the first thing that that sentence tells us is that Jesus died. (laughs) And this is something that, you know, kind of seems obvious and we might almost take it for granted. But actually, not everyone believes that Jesus actually died on the cross. So, For instance, some people believe in what we call the swoon theory, okay, which is the idea that Christ didn't actually die on the cross. He just appeared to have died. And then he sort of revived later on. And this is a way of kind of explaining how Christ might have, you know, appeared to his apostles and appeared alive later on. But obviously, this is not what Catholics believe. So the catechism in point number 632 tells us that Jesus, like all men, experienced death. And I mean, look, 
you only have to like glance over the Gospels, right, or even just watch The Passion of the Christ to see that that's a pretty difficult theory to prove that Christ didn't really die on the cross. Like, if we think about it, the Romans were basically experts at crucifying people. Like, they did this regularly. This was not a one-off. They knew what they were doing and they did it well. And particularly in this case, they had every reason to make especially sure that when it came to Jesus, he was really, truly dead. And in fact, we see this in the gospel in that moment where, you know, they're breaking the legs of the men being crucified to make sure that they die. And they get to Jesus and they're like, okay, well, he's clearly already dead. And even though he's clearly dead, they still take the precaution of picking up a spear and like stabbing him in the side. Okay, to make sure that he's definitely dead. And even if Jesus had survived this, right, the scourging, the carrying of the cross, the crucifixion, being pierced in the side with a spear, even if he'd survived all of that, he would then have had to survive a further 36 hours, roughly, being stuck inside a sealed stone tomb with no air and with his head wrapped in a bunch of bandages. Okay, so the idea that he could have gone through this ordeal alive and then somehow moved the stone of his tomb and come, you know, kind of crawling out, uh, convincing his apostles that he'd been raised from the dead. It seems pretty far-fetched, right? So, okay, I mean, this is an opinion that is around, it's not a hugely popular opinion. The general consensus from a historical perspective is that Jesus Christ really did die on the cross. So what does that mean? that Jesus died on the cross. Well, we've discussed in past episodes that death means that the soul is separated from the body. Yeah. So point number 632 of the catechism continues telling us that Jesus in his soul joined the others in the realm of the dead. So the way that we say this in the creed is we say that Christ descended into hell. Now, When we say hell in this context, we don't mean like the realm of the damned, yeah? We're not talking about people who've rejected God. The church teaches that prior to Christ's life on earth, there were many good people who had died loving God and they weren't destined for eternal damnation, right? But they also couldn't get into heaven because the gates of heaven were closed, So these people were in a kind of, you know, like a state of waiting. They were sort of like in heaven's waiting room, yeah? So in the Gospels, Christ refers to this as being in Abraham's bosom, right? Like these are all the people who are with Abraham waiting for the gates of heaven to be opened. So when Christ died, his soul separated from his body and joined all of those other people in the realm of the dead. And this is important, okay, because the Catechism then goes on to say that Christ descended into hell as saviour, right? He proclaimed the good news to the spirits imprisoned there. Now, I don't know if you have ever thought about this before. I know I certainly have. You can sometimes get the idea that, like, people from the Old Testament or, like, just people in general who had existed before Christ kind of missed out, right? Like, and it's a bit unfair. Like, they didn't get to hear the gospel. They didn't get to experience the effects of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And it's kind of unfair because it's like, well, it's just because they were born before Christ was. But here we see that this is precisely not the case. God doesn't leave anyone out or anyone behind, okay? Christ died for everyone of all times, 
So we read this in the first letter of St. Peter, right? He says, the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead so that they might live in the spirit as God does. So the dead heard the gospel just like the living, okay? They didn't miss out. And the catechism summarizes a similar point in point number 634. This is the last phase of Jesus' messianic mission. The spread of Christ's redemptive work to all people of all times and all places. So I just love the idea that Christ spent those three days while his soul was separated from his body with those people who had existed before he was born and who had, you know, genuinely sought him with an open heart and were waiting to be united with God in heaven. So Christ truly died. Okay, he descended into hell and then he rose from the dead. Now, what does it mean to say that Christ rose from the dead? So throughout the Gospels, we see plenty of occasions where Jesus brings someone back from the dead. Yeah, like the classic one is Lazarus that everyone knows. So is that what Christ's resurrection was like? Did he just kind of come back from the dead, you know, with his wounds kind of cleaned up and healed, but otherwise basically the same? Well, no. <laughs> okay, there's more to it than that. So point number 646 of the Catechism says, Christ's resurrection was not a return to earthly life. In his risen body, he passes from the state of death to another life beyond time and space. Okay, so what do we actually mean by that, right? A life beyond time and space. It sounds really science fiction, right? Okay, what we mean is that Christ didn't die and then kind of get yanked back from death and sort of restored to the way he was before, right? Like he was revived or resuscitated, okay? What we're saying is that Christ went through death, came out the other side, resurrected with a life that is completely different to the one that he had before he died. Okay, so the Catechism continues saying that the resurrected Jesus shares the divine life in his glorious state. Okay, and it quotes St. Paul saying that he is the man of heaven. Okay, so in other words, Christ's resurrected body is glorified and heavenly. In other words, it's not bound by earthly kind of limitations and laws. Yeah, it belongs to heaven. So in the Gospels, we see how Christ's resurrected body is still his human body, right? It's the same human body. So we see this in the fact that like it bears the scars of the crucifixion, yeah, like the holes in the hands and the feet and the side. And that's why one of the reasons why Jesus emphasizes that so much, right? He says to Thomas, put your hand in my side because he's saying to him, this is me. Yeah, I'm not a ghost. I'm not an apparition. I'm not a spirit. This is truly me in my body. Okay. At the same time, this same human body can now like walk through walls, yeah, and disappear and reappear at will. Okay. That same human body that can sit and eat with the disciples can also walk through a locked door. Okay. So it's still a human body, but it's not bound by earthly laws and limitations. So this is something that we'll talk about in a later episode, but basically, like, this is what all of our human bodies will be like in the new creation, right? At the other side of death, at the, the final resurrection, when we're all reunited with our bodies, 
Christ offers us a vision of what that will look like, right? Still our human bodies, but completely transformed and belonging to heaven rather than earth. Okay, so an example that we can use to kind of try to understand the difference between Christ's death and resurrection and the kind of resuscitation of someone who's just been brought back to life is in The Lord of the Rings, okay, which, to be honest, I'm a little bit surprised that it's taken, like, 11 episodes of this Catholic podcast before we got to the Lord of the Rings as an example. But anyway, here we are. So in the Lord of the Rings, there's this kind of episode where they're all walking through the mines of Moria and they're attacked by this fire demon called a Balrog. And Gandalf engages the Balrog in battle. And during this battle, both of them fall off the edge of a cliff and, like, disappear into this abyss. And everyone sees it happen, right? They see Gandalf fall and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, Gandalf is dead and it's really sad. Okay. Now, later on, Gandalf suddenly reappears, except now he's no longer just Gandalf the Grey. He's Gandalf the White. He's, like, a leveled-up Gandalf. He's, like, super powerful. He's, like, radiating with light and power, and he's way cooler. And it turns out that he actually defeated the Balrog, and then during the process of this kind of trial, he was transformed and came back way more powerful. And when you see this, like, Gandalf the White and compare him to Gandalf the Grey, it is immediately apparent that this isn't just a guy who, you know, died and was resuscitated, right? It's not like he fell off the edge of the cliff and someone yanked him out of the abyss and pulled him back. It's like this guy has been through something, right, and come out the other side completely transformed. And it's exactly the same with Christ, okay? The resurrections that Christ performed during his lifetime were like a resuscitation, yeah? It was like yanking someone out of the abyss as they fall in. Whereas with Jesus, it's like he went through death, came out the other side victorious and glorified. Okay. So in one sense, all of this sounds a little bit far-fetched, right? Like, you know, it's 2000 years ago. How can we know that this really happened? That Christ really died and then really rose from the dead in this glorified state, you know? How do we know that, for instance, that the apostles didn't just make it up, right? Or just dream it? Yeah, because that's something that people will suggest, that the disciples either, you know, invented the whole thing or that what they saw wasn't really the resurrected Jesus, that it was some sort of vision or hallucination that was brought on by the trauma of what had happened to them. Well, when it comes to the idea that the apostles just made the whole thing up, I mean, first of all, the simplest response to that suggestion is like, why? <laughs> right? Like, honestly, why would the apostles make that up? Like, what what on earth is in it for them? Like, you look at what happened to them in the Acts of the Apostles. They, they're all martyred, except for like a couple. So the idea that this was some kind of like cold-blooded attempt to swindle people just doesn't really add up. There's no reason for them to do that. Okay, so maybe they're not deliberately trying to lie, but maybe this was some kind of, you know, wishful thinking that they had imagined that Jesus had risen from the dead, but it didn't really happen. Okay, well, in response to that, let's just consider the actual evidence, okay, for Christ's resurrection. What evidence is there? Well, the first thing that we have is the empty tomb. Okay, so in John's Gospel, we read an account of Easter Sunday morning. And in this account, it says that Mary of Magdala comes running to the apostles, okay, saying, guys, they have taken Jesus' body from the tomb. 
Okay, so Mary thinks that Jesus' body has been stolen. So that's what John and Peter are responding to. Okay, John and Peter go running to the tomb to see what's going on. They get there, John runs inside, and then it tells us that John saw the wrappings, the cloths that Jesus was wrapped in, lying there, and he believed. Okay, and then the same thing happens with Peter. Peter comes in behind him, he sees the cloths, and he believed. Now, what just happened there? Mary has said they've taken the Lord. Okay, they've taken his body. She thinks that grave robbers have taken Christ. And that's what John thinks as well. Okay, he's convinced by that. He's like, great, let's let's go check it out. He runs in and he sees the cloths lying there and he believes. Now, let's also bear in mind that the apostles up to this point, to put it charitably, have been a little bit slow on the uptake when it comes to understanding what it was going to happen to Jesus, okay, what his mission was. At this point, they're still just processing the fact that he's died, okay? They haven't even begun to comprehend the idea of the resurrection. It's not like this was something that they already had in their head that they were ready and raring to believe, okay? John himself says this in his gospel. He says, as yet, they did not understand understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Okay, this is a new idea from them. And yet John goes into the empty tomb and rather than saying, okay, right, someone's taken the body. Let's send out a search party. Let's find these guys. It just says he believed. So what did they see in the tomb that made them go in a single instant from, oh oh my gosh, the body has been stolen to, oh my gosh, Jesus is alive. Okay. So the catechism suggests that there must have been something about the condition that the tomb was in that convinced both John and Peter of the fact that this wasn't just a human event, something supernatural had happened. So one of the sort of common, fairly common interpretations of this is that the, it was the bandages, the, the wrappings that were lying there had clearly not been disturbed, right? They hadn't been unraveled. It was like Jesus had just kind of disappeared from within them. Okay, so the empty tomb might not be enough on its own to prove that Jesus has risen. There are other ways of explaining why the tomb might be empty. But on top of the empty tomb, Jesus then starts to actually appear to his disciples. Now, interestingly, the very first person that Christ appears to is Mary of Magdala. Now, Mary of Magdala is not only a woman, okay, which is interesting because at the time a woman's testimony wasn't considered reliable, okay. Not only is she a woman, she's also a known sinner. She's a social outcast. She's like doubly low status in society. And yet this is the person who becomes the star witness, right? This is the one that everyone's pointing to being like, she saw him first. She saw him. It's real. Okay. If you were going to make this story up, This is the last person that you would pick as your star witness, yeah, as the person that's going to carry the story, Mary of Magdala. Okay, but Mary, she's the first, but she's not the only one that Christ appears to. Christ eventually appears to literally hundreds of his followers. So Paul, in the first letter to the Corinthians, which, by the way, predates the four Gospels, okay, and in this letter, Paul writes, he appeared to Cephas, okay, Peter, then to the twelve, then 
he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Okay, so Paul isn't just saying like, oh, yeah, like he appeared to like this exclusive handful of select people. Okay, he's also not just making general claims that can't be fact checked. He's naming names. He's saying he appeared to this guy and this guy. He also appeared to a bunch of people who are still alive and who will back me up on this. Okay, check with them. It's real. It happened. Okay, Christ has appeared to hundreds of people and they are all convinced that he is alive. And let's just consider the idea that all of these hundreds of people have just willed themselves into believing that they've seen Jesus, okay? Like, this is some sort of grief-induced mass hysteria. Because, you know, we know, right, this is a a known fact that when people experience grief, they often go through a period of denial, right? So maybe that's what happened, that everyone was just in denial. They couldn't accept the fact that Jesus was dead, so they invented this story. Let's just, like, consider from a psychological perspective, what had happened to these guys, okay? The apostles have been on like the emotional roller coaster of a lifetime, right? So they met Jesus and at first they are so excited, right? They're like, oh my gosh, we've met the Messiah. He's the best. We love him. He's going to overthrow the Romans. You know, everything is coming up apostles. Everything's great. It's fantastic. And then suddenly Jesus is ripped from them in the most violent, cruel, humiliating way. And these people are just like immobilized by shock and grief in that moment. They were not expecting this at all. So point 643 of the catechism reads, far from showing us a community seized by a mystical exaltation, the gospels present us with disciples demoralized and frightened. Okay. So these guys are kind of completely, you know, panicked and shocked and grief-stricken and also terrified, right? Like we're told that they're hiding from the Jews. They're terrified that they're next. Yeah, they've got to lay low. Otherwise, the Jews might come for them. And in fact, some of the disciples actually start to leave. Yeah, so there are the two guys who decide to go back to Emmaus. They're like, well, I guess it's all over. Like, Jesus is dead. I guess we better just go home. Okay, So in all of this, there probably was an element of, you know, disbelief, right? Of like, I I cannot believe, I can't accept that this has happened. But in general, what we get here is a picture of a group of people who are just mainly sad (laughs) and who are trying to lay low and who seem pretty defeated. And then something happens. Okay, something happens and it's like an explosion has gone off. Yeah, it's like someone has put dynamite under the apostles. Mary of Magdala, who had, you know, five minutes ago quite reasonably assumed that Jesus' body had just been stolen by grave robbers, suddenly comes bursting back in, insisting that she has seen Jesus and that he's alive. The guys who are on their way to Emmaus, right, sort of trudging back home in defeat, come tearing back in the middle of the night, like they've been traveling all night on foot because they need to tell the others that they have seen the Lord and that he's alive. Okay, so something has happened. They have seen something. Now, interestingly, this idea that Christ is alive, it's not something that catches on immediately with the other apostles. It's not like it's sort of 
like hysteria that is like wildfire and spreads really quickly. What we see in the Gospels is that many of the apostles were very reluctant to believe that Christ had risen from the dead. Understandably, right? They're like, this is crazy talk. Like, you just look at Thomas. He's like, guys, this is completely ridiculous. There is no way I'm going to believe this until you can prove it to me. So it's not like they're all just waiting around ready for something to ignite their hysteria. They're very resistant to this idea. And in fact, when Jesus finally appears to them, he has to like scold them for their lack of belief. He's like, come on, guys, didn't you hear me saying that this had to happen? But even these guys, the ones who are reluctant, who are slow to believe, once they see Christ as well, they undergo the same transformation and become completely convinced that Christ is alive, that he's truly alive, not just that he's a ghost or a vision or that they imagined him, but he, like, they touched him, they put their hand in his side, they ate with him, yeah? And in fact, these guys are so convinced that Christ is alive that they are eventually ready to leave everything, to risk everything, to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. They're like baptizing people, they're preaching, they're arguing with the Pharisees, getting arrested, writing letters, catechizing. They're flogged and stoned and chased out of town and ultimately martyred for their faith. Okay, okay, so why does this matter to us today? Okay, the fact that Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, why does that matter for us today? Okay, well, a couple of reasons. First of all, because it reminds us, it proves to us that Christ is who he says he is, yeah, and that the things that he has told us are true. I mean, God is so good, right? He knows that as earthbound human beings, we need to experience stuff. We need to touch it and see it in order to really understand it. So think of it this way. Imagine if Christ had said to his disciples, like, okay, look, I'm going to die and it will be horrific and traumatic and painful, but just trust me, it is going to be okay. And this is how I will have saved you from your sins. And after it's all over, and I've been brutally murdered and you're traumatized and scared and alone and unsure, I want you to know that I'm in heaven with my father, okay? And everything's okay. And you're going to be in heaven with me too. You know, I've gone to prepare a place for you. So just calm down. Everything's fine. Be happy. And in fact, I want you to go out and start my church and start telling people that they're saved now. And isn't it wonderful? You know, we should all be baptized and come be Christians with the rest of us because Christ has died for our sake. And now he's in heaven with the father. You know, just take my word for it. Okay. Everything's okay. Just believe me. It's fine. You're saved now. Now, God could have said that, right? And he also could have convicted us of the truth of our salvation, you know, through the Holy Spirit, which he does through Pentecost, okay? Strictly speaking, Christ didn't have to appear to us in his glorified body. But at the same time, Christ is so merciful and he knows us so well and loves us so much. And he knew that this was the easiest way for us to understand and believe that we were saved and that he is who he says he is and that we can trust him. And this leads us to the second reason why the resurrection is so important for us because it reminds us what we have been saved for. Yeah, what what the point of the crucifixion is, what the point of suffering is. It reminds us that the whole point of the cross 
isn't the cross for its own sake, yes? We're not masochists. We don't love suffering for the sake of suffering. The point of the cross is that the resurrection comes after it. The joy and the peace and the happiness that waits for us on the other side. So point number 654 of the Catechism tells us that the Paschal mystery has two aspects. By his death, Christ liberates us from sin, and by his resurrection, he opens for us a way to a new life. So in his resurrected, glorified body, God shows us our end goal. He reminds us that, yes, okay, we're called to suffer with him. We're called to take up our cross and to follow him, but we're called to follow him through that suffering and out the other side. Yeah, we're not just called to be crucified. We're also called to rise with him. So in 1 Corinthians, we read, Christ has been raised from the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ in his risen body asks us to trust him. He says, hold tight to me, suffer with me, and then come and enter into the joy of your master. So there's an image that kind of springs to mind here, right? And it's taken from the sixth Harry Potter book. And it's the moment when Harry apparates for the first time with Dumbledore. Now, for the uninitiated, in Harry Potter world, apparition is when you disappear from one place and reappear in another. Okay, so Harry has never done this before, and he actually doesn't know how to do it. So he can't do it on his own. So Dumbledore tells him, okay, that's okay, just hold on to me. Hold tight to me, and I will carry both of us through. So Harry holds tightly to Dumbledore's arm. And then this is the quote. It says, the next thing he knew, everything went black. He was pressed very hard from all directions. He could not breathe. There were iron bands tightening around his chest. His eyeballs were being forced back into his head. His eardrums were being pushed deeper into his skull. And then he gulped great lungfuls of cold night air and opened his streaming eyes. Harry realised that he had just apparated for the first time in his life. So I personally find this image really helpful during periods of suffering, right? Because sometimes it can feel like this, like like there's kind of darkness surrounding you on all sides and pressing in on you. And all you can do, all you know how to do is just hold tightly to our Lord and trust that he's going to carry you through. And this is the promise that the resurrected Christ offers us, right? He says, hold tightly to me, even when everything is pressing in on every side, when you're suffering so much and just know that I will pull you out the other side and look at the the beauty and the joy and the glory that waits for you on the other side. Okay, now, if you would like to sort of pray or meditate more on the idea of the resurrection, I would personally recommend hopping onto YouTube and just typing Bishop Robert Barron resurrection into the search bar, because I don't know why Bishop Barron has about 20 million, okay, that's an exaggeration, has about 10 (laughs) videos on the resurrection on YouTube, and every single one of them is amazing. He also has his homilies from every Easter Sunday on YouTube, and they're all kind of brilliant and powerful and amazing. So I highly recommend listening to those and praying with those, particularly the homily from Easter 2020. That is an amazing one. Um, So powerful and so eloquent. So I highly recommend that. Okay. That is all we have time for this week. Thank you for sticking with me. Next episode, we're going to talk about Christ's ascension into heaven and then his second coming. Such fun. I can't wait. And I will look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Bye.